You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. All right. Good morning, Foothills Church. You glad to be here today? All right. We will see. We'll see. I'm excited to share this third week of Through the Fire with you. This will be the final time that I preach here before we leave, and so uh, I hope that um, it goes well. If not, I'll see you later. (laughs) Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, in the book of Daniel. Now, we're in our third week of Through the Fire talking about culture, and most of what we've talked about these last few weeks has been the secular culture that is around us and how we engage or embrace that or stand against that in the Christian life today. But what we're going to look about today is very specific, maybe even more personal for us as those who attend church, those who perhaps call ourselves followers of Jesus. And we're going to look at the religious culture and religious pride that plays itself out in a religious culture. And as we look at chapter 4, I don't want to just look at it, but how do we protect ourselves and how do we intentionally embrace or engage certain things so that we shatter or crush any religious pride that the enemy might want to try to seduce us into believing. In chapter 4, many years have passed since chapter 3, about 30 years between chapter 3 and chapter 4. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved out of the fiery furnace. And right away in chapter 4, we see King Nebuchadnezzar speaking about the one true God. And we learn something in the midst of this, that God is still in control as he uses a pagan king to do something that God wants Israel to do and certainly wants us to continue doing, but because of Israel's failure to do it, they are now in judgment and discipline. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This is very important, for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, it starts off with something that we know is the heart of God to all the peoples, nations, and languages. And we we really hear how common or familiar this is as we look through all throughout Scripture when God is calling Israel all the way to the book of Revelation, where John writes in Revelation 7, verse 9, I looked and behold a a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, from every language, of all people standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all God's people said, amen. I mean, it's like a cheerleading moment in Revelation 7. And we see what God is always about. And that is the glorification and magnification of his great name. Nebuchadnezzar says, God's great. Look what he's done for me. And God didn't do that to make Nebuchadnezzar's name great. God is making his own name great. To exalt his own great name. And what Nebuchadnezzar does in the midst of this, why it sounds so great, and God's using a powerful pagan king, there is a religious pride at work in his religious culture. He's a polytheistic believer, which means he has many gods, still calling Daniel Belteshazzar, which is the very name of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And in the midst of this, he's doing the one dangerous thing that we do in religious pride in a religious culture. He tried to add the one true God to all of his other gods. And so how do we crush this religious pride in a religious culture that allows us to think that we are something that we are not? 
And one of my great fears living in the South in America is there's just a religious culture that pervades us, and there are many people who believe they are something like a disciple of Christ when actually they are not. And it's dangerous for the church of Jesus Christ to live in such a way that we let that be okay. And let people live in their deception. And we're going to see in Luke chapter 14 that Jesus will not allow us to be there. And he crushes it. So how do we, how do we know what the religious culture is? And how do we crush it? Or shatter it in such a way that we know that we are true followers of Jesus Christ. Turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. Jesus, speaking one of the hard sayings in verse 25, Luke writes, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, and here's the thing, anytime crowds gathered around Jesus, he gave a hard saying, and many of them would leave. Jesus knew that many people wanted to follow him for the benefits that it looked like he was giving them. Free food, healing, lots of things surrounded Jesus. But he knew the hearts of people. And he would give these hard sayings because he didn't want to build a crowd. He wanted to build disciples of Christ. And then he says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, she cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his or her own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet he who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And we read that and just say, Where's the verses that like to say, Jesus loves me? I like those. I like those better. (laughs) Me too. But how do you crush religious pride in a religious culture and truly and intentionally embrace those things that identify us as authentic followers of Christ? That's a great question. Jesus starts out in this cost of discipleship telling us to start with you've got to count the cost he uses two secular examples and he he uses a a man building a building and and you should count the cost before you build or you're just going to have a half built building and those going out to war do you have enough if you're going to go to war do you have enough to win that war you better count the cost you better count the cost and as he talks about counting the cost jesus starts with the family Why would he start with a family? I mean, we know that he's not actually saying hate. Hate your mom and dad and your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, because we know there are other places in Scripture that tell us to love them and honor them. So what does he mean by hate? Very simply, without going into a long explanation, it's just I, you should love them so much less that they do not become the driving influence in your life. Only Christ and his spirit is the driving influence. He's telling us right off the bat, for the Jesus follower, a family cannot be an idol in your life. And discipleship may call you to leave your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your children and to reprioritize them in ways completely contrary to the world system. Count the cost. You know, it's a great challenge to read these verses like this through American eyes and through an American perspective. I mean, let's be honest, some of the New Testament, we just scroll over it because it doesn't connect to us because it just doesn't, it doesn't hit us where we live. For instance, 
We read about these amazing writers like Matthew and Peter and Paul and James and Luke and John, and they're our heroes. We love them. But, but, but we have to understand, the Bible was written by people who were being persecuted and martyred and killed. All of them were massacred. Matthew was, was killed with uh, this, this thing called, it's a double axe with a point on it. It's like a medieval thing, and they sliced Matthew and killed him. Peter, the leader of the church, was crucified upside down. Paul, our great missionary leader, was beheaded in Rome. James, who wrote the book of James and was the leader of the Jerusalem church, Jesus' half-brother, was thrown off the highest wall in the temple during Passover, trying to kill him. But he broke his legs and still alive, and he was on his knees praying to Jesus, and they didn't die. And so they started picking up rocks and pelting him and stoning him to death. But he still wouldn't die. So somebody took a club and went up to James while he's on his knees praying in the temple, bashing his head in and his brains fall out. Luke Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was hanged in Greece from an olive tree. Doubting Thomas, no longer doubting, was a missionary to India. And one day a pagan priest took a spear and rammed it through him. These dudes were killed for what we're doing. These, these guys were tortured and massacred. Sometimes we romanticize this following of Christ as if it's some feels thing. Hey, follow Jesus. It's cool. Feel it. He's good. He'll help you. We're calling people to die. Not only were the writers persecuted and martyred, but they were writing to people who were imprisoned and beaten and burned and, and tortured and we read the New Testament from our eyes, and someone's like, man, it's just, just such a disconnect. And we romanticize Christianity so much, forgetting the fact that when we're asking someone to follow Jesus, we're basically asking them to die. Die to self. Renounce everything. And then God may call you to a country where it's really a place where you may die. Around the world today, when a Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish person comes to faith in Christ, their father and mother, family, may say to them, why do you hate us, shame us, disrespect us? In India, a teenage Hindu girl, a friend of mine was helping, became a follower of Jesus, and her father put out a contract on her life to have her killed. Last week, we baptized 28 people to the applause and fanfare and celebration of people standing ovations and iPhone pics going on Instagram. Yeah! There were no contracts to die. The public demonstration of baptism did not lead to the imprisonment of anyone. Yet what we see in the New Testament and around the world is exactly What's happening? How do we live in that? Because it seems like there's such a disconnect for us. Jesus starts with family. Why does he start with family? I think it's because many times it's our family members who are the greatest barriers to following Jesus. I mean really following Jesus. A teen or an older teen or young 20s might say, I, I truly became a follower of Christ and I need to be baptized following my salvation. And the parents say, no, you did that when you were younger. Causing them to disobey. One spouse is passionately seeking obedience in Christ and willing to forsake all for the kingdom of God here or around the world. But the other spouse is just not there. Parents discouraging their teen or their college student from going on a foreign mission trip or considering midterm, two years, two months or longer, or long-term missions, or they won't let them go without a parent going with them. We do not seem to be counting the cost and loving Jesus and his kingdom and his mission to make his name known among the nations, the greatest priority in our lives and families. 
Are we raising our children with the hopes, dreams, prayers, equipping, training to make Jesus known among the nations, or are we not? I don't hear this very much among even church families that we're telling our six-year-old and our eight-year-old and our 10-year-old and our 14 and our 18, hey, I just want you to know that your life is to be given for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Your life is to be given for making Jesus known among the nations. And if we ask our children, what do you think the most important thing in our home is? To make Jesus known among the nations? Or for you to be an AAU competitive basketball star on the weekend? Or be the best dancer? Or get a great education and then go off to college and get a degree so you can have a great job and continue the American dream that looks nothing like Christianity? What if we told our kids, you want to be a teacher, that's awesome. Encouraging them to pray about being a teacher in a country that does not have adequate teachers and education system and engineers and medical students and going overseas where there are places where you can use that as a platform to both relieve the urgent physical needs of the world, but using that as a platform to make the gospel known among the nations. No, I want to redesign my basement and add a house on my property. So you stay right here. And the idea of raising our children, I just do not hear anybody giving up the secular things of this world very often for the sake of sending and going to the nations. It's got to change. We've got to count the cost. I think we should change our baby dedication and and uh, if we did this, I'm not sure how many babies would be dedicated. But uh, uh, Lord, I dedicate my son, my daughter, to make Jesus known among the nations. And God, if you call him or her, if you call him or her to go to the nations, I will encourage them and not block them or discourage them. Use them for the good of mankind and for your glory, whatever and whenever or however that leads them. Wow. That's counting the cost. But we say, no, it's not safe. It's not a safe thing to say or pray. Well, let me just say this. Safety is not a Christian concept. It's not a Christian virtue. Safety is not Christian. If you want to be safe, don't become a follower of Jesus. Now, the Enneagram 6 people just had a panic attack. Their whole life is about safety. Now, of course we know that everything about Jesus is safety, but here's the thing, we have to redefine safety. Safety is me being right in the middle of God's will and his calling and commands in my life. Even if that leads me to prison or to death, or around the world in places where it's not physically safe. That's safety. The other safety is not a Christian concept. And it's a religious pride to think that we don't have to count the cost here in America and continue to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, Jesus says, at the very end of that, verse 33, just in case family and then your own life and bearing a cross, just in case that didn't cover it, Jesus concludes this with, any one of you who does not renounce all that he or she has cannot be my disciple. Well, way to sum it up, Jesus. I think that puts a bow on it, right? Renounce all, all, renounce all that you have cannot, cannot be my disciple. Renounce all. King Nebuchadnezzar is adding God to his gods and his idols. He's not renouncing his gods or idols to make the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. And, and for us, we would say making Jesus the Lord, the master, the authority, the treasure of our life. We have many treasures, and our affection go to many earthly treasures rather than the one true treasure that is Christ. 
renouncing, denying, burning all other idols, removing them from our house and our mantle, giving full allegiance to Jesus and the one true God. I've seen this all over the world with Hindu and animistic cultures specifically. Hindus have over 300 million gods. If you want to ask them if they want to add Jesus as one of their gods, they would say, that would be awesome. I'll take any God to help me with prosperity, with health, with my family, with having children, with having good crops, whatever it might be. If there's a chance that he can bring me fortune, health, children, crops, then I will add him. But when you follow up with, no, you don't add Jesus to your 300 million idols, gods. When you add Jesus, you renounce, burn, throw away, and trash all other idols. And here's where the rub comes. When you take Jesus, you have to renounce those idols, charms, trinkets out of your house and burn them or throw them in the trash. And then we hear, no, I'm not ready to do that. Now here we may think we're not, (laughs) we're way too sophisticated to put idols up in our homes and worship them. But for some, the home is their idol. We don't need to put a little statue of something to represent wealth or money on our mantle because for many of us, our money is our idol. We have some accepted idols in our day. And we, even Christians sometimes, or those who say they are Christians, look more like the, 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 the rich people in Scripture who tear down barns to big, big, bigger barns and tear that barn down to, big, to build bigger barns rather than those who have forsaken all and renounced all. We have some accepted idols in our day, materialism, comfort, safety, and children, the welfare of our children, the protection of our children, the needs of our children. And Jesus' words in Luke 14 blow all of that out of the water. But somehow we just accept these idols because everyone around us, even those who go to church, Accept them because everyone we know seems to bow down to them. So we all just do it collectively. If somebody stands up to say we will not participate in this and we will not do this because of our devotion to Jesus Christ, even the religious culture will go, they're weirdos, fanatics. They've taken it a little too far. When will we realize the American dream is not our goal as Christ followers? That God's kingdom in making disciples of all nations is our goal. My friend from India came in a few weeks ago and he was telling me a story in Saudi Arabia about a worship service they were having privately because of persecution. And men came in with guns and, and hoods and masks and came in with guns and put the mask on every, covered the faces of every single person that was worshiping that day, holding a gun to them saying, If you renounce Jesus Christ and leave, you will live. If you make Jesus your Lord, we will shoot you and you will die. This just happened not too long ago. Some of the people left the room and others stayed. And when they left the room, the men with guns said, you can take off your mask now. We're followers of Jesus Christ and we're trying to start a movement like the book of Acts in Saudi Arabia and we need to get rid of all the false Christians. I thought, holy cow! Who's going to start a church like that? <laughs> what? I, like, again, I, I see it from America, and I'm like, who does that? People who are going to die for their faith do that. What if that, I didn't want to go there, I can't go there. These words, these words of Luke 14 seem so foreign to us. What if that happened to us? Leave this building, now we're going to shoot you and renounce you. Who would stay, who would leave? Wow. 
It just doesn't feel too costly to follow Jesus in America somehow. And sure, it means giving a little money or a little time that we might spend elsewhere, but we're not in danger of being stoned or crucified or abandoned or put in prison or have our parents put a contract on us. Our parents take pictures of us, celebrate and take us to lunch if we get baptized. Such a disconnect from almost everything the believers of the New Testament went through and were going through and is still going through in many places today in our world. I know in January, we, we first heard this song that we started playing in our worship team here called More Like Jesus. And I love that song and I hate that song. More like Jesus. If more of you means less of me take everything and I remember hearing it for the first time and I was standing by my wife Christy and we were singing and arms were raised and I, I just literally said if more of you means less of me take some things <laughs> and she said what did you just say I said, I can't come in here and say something that I don't feel in my heart. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And my mom had just died of cancer. My sister was just diagnosed with cancer, and I feel like we'd lost so much. And I just said, I, I, I just, and God was beginning to move in our hearts that maybe we were going to go and leave and go to the nations. And I thought, can I, can I just be honest? I, 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 take some things. I just don't want to lie. I don't want to lie to God. I don't want to say take everything. When I'm not sitting, I'm not here to say take everything. I'm not there. And to come to the place where that journey into that deep, painful place has become true. And we now sing it with tears. If more of you means less of me, take everything. Take everything. Because there's no treasure on this earth that's more valuable, Jesus, than you. You are the treasure that is above every treasure and there's nothing that this world has to offer and nothing that death can take away that's more valuable than you. Take everything. Renounce all. It's so sad that we come in here thinking that we are Christians because cultural, cultural Christianity has shown us that all you have to do is add Jesus to your life and keep all the other idols and gods and the American dream just the way it is. Just add Jesus. Don't think about costs. Don't think about renouncing all. And it's religious pride to think that you don't have to renounce all and still be a disciple. Jesus says you cannot be my disciple. Thirdly, Back in the book of Daniel, we see Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar this dream. No one could interpret the dream. And so they call on Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a mighty tree in the middle of the world. And an angel comes down and he says, chop it down, but leave the stump. No one can interpret it, so they bring Daniel back in. Daniel interprets the dream, and Daniel interprets the dream of the king. And he says to the king, the mighty tree is you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, no one wanted to bring bad news to the king in that day, because if the king got bad news, they weren't kind and patient with bad news. So if you told the king bad news, your life could be over. So Daniel says the the mighty tree is you, and the angel coming down and saying, chop it down, it's chopping you down. But leave the stump. Because for about seven years, king, you are going to turn into an animal, a beast. And you're going to walk among the pastures, and you're going to eat forage from the fields. Your hair's going to grow, fingernails, toenails, and you're going to crawl around on all four like a cow eating grass, sheep goats. But after a time, the stump remains. You're going to return. But then he says at the end of that dream, Daniel chapter 4 verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. 
<laughs> That's a nice way to say, please don't kill me. <laughs> but you ask, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. King, you can eliminate this judgment if number three, you repent. Repent and live righteous. Turn from all your idols. Turn from all the things and people that bring you comfort. Don't add Jesus to your life and your dream and your comfort and your safety. Make Jesus and his kingdom the sole priority and authority of your life. And live holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's a painful, it's more painful language for us. But just as Daniel's telling him to repent and be holy, and, and, and Jesus is telling us to renounce all, repent, Paul jumps in the act in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same language as Jesus, that you cannot be my disciple if, Paul says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived. Do not be religiously pride, proud. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he says, don't be deceived. It's not that you've done these things that eliminate you from the kingdom of God. All of us may find ourselves in that list. I do. It's not that you've done them, but, but what changed? You repented. You repented, you turned from the idols, you turned from that lifestyle, you turned from that sin, and you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He washed you, he reconciled you, he redeemed you, he justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of the living God, you are a new creation in Christ. Some of you were like this, but you're not this anymore. But if you are, if you're staying here, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a cultural clash for all of us. Will not. As followers of Christ, the greatest thing, our primary responsibility is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ so that more people might inherit the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that true? But if we acknowledge and encourage people to be whoever they are and do what they want to do, we are condemning them to an eternal hell. And that's on us. I love you too much. I want you to be redeemed and washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life, not eternal death. I love you too much to let you stay here Please repent. Turn from your sins and iniquities and follow Jesus Christ. Renounce all, count the cost, and give him the authority of your life. Isn't that the gospel? Alcohol, smoking weed, materialism, food, adulterous relationships, Sex, homosexual relationship, porn, comfort, safety, repent. Because they're all sins and iniquities that lead to showing that you are God. I want what I want. My desires, my cravings, my needs. I want them filled. I want my appetites filled. I want all my affections to go to the creation, the created things, not to the creator. Just listen to how we talk. 
I would never do that. Sometimes we're talking about Christian things. I would never go there. I would never let my children do this. I wish we could get the boldness of a gospel. And when people start sentences with the word I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go there. I'm glad they are. I wouldn't do that. I'm not doing that. I, to just gently and lovingly say, that's interesting. What does God want you to do? You see, God followers don't start a lot of sentences with I. It's if the Lord wills, God's calling, God's speaking. I'm not there yet, but if God calls me there, I'll be glad to go there. I'll be glad to do that. God's commanded me to stay in my marriage, commanded me. Commanded me to be sexually pure. Commanded. Commanded me to fix my eyes upon Jesus, not pornography. Commanded. No, I don't do my will. I do God's will. Isn't that what a Christ follower would say? I won't, I wouldn't, I shouldn't, my kids won't, my family doesn't do it. We do. What does God want? What does God say? Repent. It's religious pride to think that you can live with these idols, disobeying Jesus and disobeying the word of God and think you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a religious pride if you think these verses are not true and that you know more than God. And you cannot be my disciple. And then number four, how do I intentionally smash the religious pride in my life and keep me from being God and making God the one true God? Number four is to care for the poor. To care for the poor. Daniel says, care for the oppressed, the poor, the widow, the alien, the foreigner, the immigrant. Care for them. We need to care for the physical, urgent needs of the world, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, today, 20,000 children will die today because they do not have basic needs like clean water, adequate food, vaccinations, basic medical care to protect them from preventable diseases. 20,000 children every day in the world. One way to eliminate pride in your life is to embrace the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, fight for justice, those who cannot help themselves. Caring for the poor helps us focus on others and keeps us from always thinking about our comfort and our safety and our needs and makes us look at our resources and give them to people who are in physical need to keep us from continuing to bathe ourselves in comfort. Caring for the poor helps us focus on others, others-centered and not self-centered, and keeps us from indulging our resources and our thoughts and everything on ourselves. The poor, I need to know them. I need to see their face when the poor are mentioned. I need to know their names. Ezekiel chapter 16 is an amazing Story. Many of you have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Almost everybody. What did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Say it really loud. He destroyed it. Why did he destroy it? What was the sin that caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed? How many of you have heard that the sin of homosexuality was the sin that caused God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody ever heard that? Ever heard a preacher say that? Anybody heard that? You know what? Let's just go to Scripture, and let's see why God did it. Wouldn't that be great? We listen to people talk sometimes and go, well, that's what happened. That's what, the, that's what he said. Well, let's just read what God says. So all of 16 is about Jerusalem, and God, you'd have to read it. And it's straight in Scripture. God's calling Jerusalem a whore and a prostitute. Not my words, God's words. 
I typically try not to call people that. And then he goes down and he's talking about personification here. And he says, Jerusalem and your sister Sodom. So he's using it like this. And he says, I just want you to know, you're doing more whoring and prostituting than your sister Sodom. And I destroyed her. Okay, that's about Jerusalem. But then he says in verse 49, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Good. We're going to hear what it truly is. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Did not care for the poor and the needy. Oh my gosh. I've heard so many things in my life about why God destroyed them. It's because they did not care for the poor. They focused on their arrogance, their pride, their needs, their comfort, their safety, and ignored the poor and the needy around them. Does that sound like any place, culture, country that you know? Now, verse 50 gives us a little more. They were haughty and did an abominable things, an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. We all want to talk about those sexual sins of verse 50, which I'm sure they were bad. But I want you to see how the slide happens. It starts with focusing on us, our needs, our appetites, our craving, our affections, and putting them where we want on us. As we become self-focused and not others and caring for the poor and the needy, giving all of our resources to ourselves and our own comfort and safety, we begin to slide. And before long in that slide, we are doing detestable things. Every appetite, craving, affection that we want, we want to feed it. And we're seeing that all around us. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. The urgent physical needs in the world are overwhelming. Jesus says in the great commandment, love others, care for the urgent physical needs of the world. James 1, 26 says, religion that is pure and faultless is this, James says, care for the orphan and the widow in their time of distress and keep oneself polluted from the world. See the balance. What do I need to do with the wealth and privilege I have to leverage that for the urgent physical needs of the world? It is pride, religious pride to not care for the poor. And then number five, the last thing to close out, we have to make disciples of all nations. We talk about it all the time. Make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is not make disciples. The Great Commission is make disciples of all nations. In South Asia right now, that covers the countries of India, Pakistan, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Maldives, Sri Lanka. 250,000 South Asians die every single week. So before we come to church again next Sunday, 250,000 South Asians will die and spend an eternity in hell. And many of them, if not most of them, will die without even hearing the name of Jesus. Do we care? Do we think about it? Is it on our prayer list? Are we talking about it in our family devotions? Over two billion people in the world have never even heard the gospel of Jesus. As urgent as the physical needs are, clean water, wells, medical care, education, and they are. They are, and we need to embrace them all. The greatest need in the world is the spiritual need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed among the nations. Earthly suffering is devastating, and it is, but eternal suffering is by far worse. We care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. The greatest and most urgent need in the world is the spread and the love of Jesus Christ, which will give all people's life forever. How awful it would be to be living in an eternal to be living in an earthly hell only to die and end up in an eternal hell. Are you participating in making Jesus known to the nations? To 
to be a disciple of Christ without embracing this, I think Jesus would say it, 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 it's, just, it's just religious pride to think that you can be and not embrace making disciples of the nations. So we say four quick things, and I close with this. Pray, give, send, go. Pray. For God to be known among the nations. Luke 10, 2 says this. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Pray earnestly that God would send out more workers into the harvest field. Make that your prayer every day. My alarm goes off at 10.02 every day. 10.02 because of Luke 10.2. A.M. or P.M., do whatever, do both. But let it go off and then pray, Lord, I pray that there be more workers go into the harvest field. The needs are abundant. And then I always pray this, and Lord, let me be the answer to my own prayer. Pray. Joshua's Project is an app. Add the Joshua's Project app to your phone. It can ding whenever you want in a uh, notification. And it's got a new unreached people group every day that you can pray for, that God would bring the gospel to them. Workers would be sent to them. Hebrews 13.3 says, pray for your persecuted brothers and sisters who are in prison. Pray for them as if you're in prison with them, for you are one body. Pray. Give. Are you giving? Giving your money, giving your resources to eternal causes, to this church who is a kingdom church. Send. This church is a sending church. We'll be sending many families this year and more to come and college students and others. Be a part of an advocacy team that we're developing around every family that goes or every unit, individual, single, or family that goes. Let your small group be an advocate where we're caring and praying for them and staying in relationship with them so they don't feel forgotten and alone on the field. Go. Go. Not every one of us is called to go overseas. We know that. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out of the church in Antioch in Acts 13, they sent Paul and Barnabas. And what did the rest of the church do? They stayed, taking the gospel to their city and their community and their villages where they were. Not everyone is called to go, but I believe this with all my heart. There are more people in this church, in this room, listening on the internet who are called to go than we're giving and raising up. There are more of you. And after this service, I'm going to be in the care and prayer room. And if you're beginning to feel the tug on your heart to go for three months, six months, a year, a semester, or for your life, I just want to pray with you. I just want to pray with you. If you feel called to go in some way. Our denomination, Southern Baptists, have just started something in June called Go To. G-O, Go To, the number two. Go Two Years. And they're encouraging every Southern Baptist church and every 20-something-year-old who's in college or finishing college or beginning college to carve out two years of their life before college, during one of their years, after they graduate, give two years of their life to the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And then see what God does and begin your life, if it's different than that, later. At Maryville College, there's an international students there from 27 countries. We're partnering. We're working with them. Matter of fact, as I said this, after the service, there was somebody from Jamaica who was here from Maryville College as an international student, and I got to meet him and his host family. If some of them could come to Christ, those who aren't, many are, some aren't, and be discipled and go back to their countries, they could be the Paul, the Timothy, the Silas to their own country. Whatever you are thinking about pray, give, send, or especially go, I want you to know, whatever God is doing in your life, you're probably thinking too small right now. God wants to do more with you and your life and your resources. By counting the cost, renouncing all, repenting of all sin, caring for the poor and the needy and the urgent physical needs of the world, but ultimately embracing caring for the spiritual needs here and around the world. You're thinking too small. It's possible for you. How do I leverage my resources, the blessings God has given me, the freedom that I have here, 
not just being thankful, but how do I leverage them for the physical urgent needs of the world and the spiritual urgent needs of the world? You dedicate your life to this, and your life will matter and live beyond you. It will shatter religious pride, and your life will count for their good and for his glory. Amen? Father, we love you and bless you. You're a good God. We proclaim you are God. And the only thing that we need to be about is making your name known among the nations. And Lord, let us begin by looking, looking at our houses and saying, these are, these are your houses, Lord. They're yours. Use them for your kingdom. This empty bedroom I have, who do you want to put in this bedroom, Lord? How could I care for the urgent or the spiritual or physical needs of the world? My bank account, it has money in it, Lord. Who would you want me to use? How can I give to expand the kingdom and make your name known among the nations? Everything I have, my family, we're dedicated to this cause. It's our priority. It looks like we hate everything else the way we're loving you and your kingdom. I pray that this would be so in our families. I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.